Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the films of action icon Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host Sean Malloy and today is another special episode. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Christopher Kulikowski, writer and director of the 2004 action science fiction film Retrograde. To anyone unfamiliar with this film, Lundgren plays John Foster, a time traveler from the future who travels back in time to stop the onset of a biological disaster occurring in the Antarctic. Retrograde was a potentially exciting project for Dolph. Over the course of his career, Dolph really hadn't had much opportunity to star in a full-on science fiction movie. Plus, the film also paired him with another action star, Gary Daniels. Yet, good intentions aside, Retrograde was not the easiest of productions, and everyone involved in the film was faced with a number of setbacks. One of these setbacks was the fact that the film's production company, Franchise Pictures, was going bankrupt in the process. Yet despite these problems, Kulikowski and Lundgren were still able to complete Retrograde. Kulikowski was gracious enough to chat with me about Retrograde's inspiration, the difficulty shooting the film, and why it wasn't officially released in the U.S. until 2008, almost five years after the film had commenced filming. Chris Kulikowski also filled me in on his current role in film today as a post-production supervisor, as well as what he has in store for the year 2019. While Retrograde may not be one of Dolph's more popular films, it is certainly one of his most original, and it's a prime example at how even the best laid plans can often go askew in Hollywood. Regardless, it's a fun flick to just kick back and enjoy, and Chris Kulikowski was the ultimate treat to speak with. So if you're listening pleasure, is my conversation with Retrograde's Christopher Kulikowski on I Must Break, this podcast. Hello. Uh, yes, hello, Mr. Kulikowski. Hey, it's, uh, is this Sean? Yes, it is. Hey, you could call me Chris. You don't have to call me Mr. Kulikowski. It sounds too formal. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, I, uh, I really appreciate this. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I don't know if you, uh, I don't think I sent you the link or not, but, uh, yeah, I've been doing a, a podcast for about the past year now on the films of, uh, of Dolph Lundgren. And Retrograde is one film that, um, I, I have an appreciation for. Um, and I've watched it a few times, actually. I actually just watched it a couple a couple nights ago in preparation for this. And so um, I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me, not just about this film, but about your career in general. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm, I, you know, ask away. I mean, it's it's been a little while. I mean, I was uh, it was 2003 when I um, started Retrograde back in the day. And, um, you know, even back then, you know, my recollection of the whole process is, Let's just say it was an interesting exercise because it had, it had started out in so many so many different ways, and what ultimately ended up being the final uh, project. Because whether you're aware of it or not, I mean, there were some interesting things that were happening at the time. One of the principal producers on the com- on the uh, project was a company called Franchise Pictures. As we were making the film, Franchise was in effect collapsing, and we we were. Basically, what was happening is we were running out of money and we were running out of time very quickly. So we were constantly, as we were making the project, uh, 
trying to streamline the process. And, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, let's just say this. I, certainly it was an ambitious project, and it certainly started out even more ambitious, but there was a lot of compromise along the way. Um, it was an experience, and, uh, you know, and <laughs> Dolph and I survived it. <laughs> Well, and I was going to ask you about Franchise Pictures because, yeah, I, I remember when Franchise Pictures was in existence. And they had, I mean, they had a lot of, like, really big budget and high-profile stuff that um, was making the theatrical rounds. Was was yeah. Retrograde intended to be a theatrical release when it was first conceptualized? I think in certain uh, territories, yes. In fact, it was released theatrically, I believe, in South Korea. But by the time, you know, whether you're – one thing I have to say, when you release a, a, um, a motion picture theatrically, it takes a great deal of resources and marketing um, and money. And by the time we were done with Retrograde, I mean, the franchise was pretty much done and over with. So um, when we when we pursued, when the project was rolling, <clears throat> it started out with one set of rules and one sort of budget. And as we were going along and realizing what was happening in the franchise, it was all it was all falling apart. The other thing that was hurting us, if I recall, is we started the project and greenlit the project, and the dollar was significantly stronger against the euro. By the time we finished the project, which was all very, very quick, the dollar had lost a lot of ground, and the euro was stronger. So the Ford partners who were financing the film were were losing out on the whole process. It was it was a, it was let's just say it was like a perfect storm of things that were happening. And quite frankly, I'm I'm. I'm amazed looking back at like what were we able to pull together because we essentially did the project in four weeks in shooting and three weeks in editorial. Three weeks in editorial is unheard of almost in any in any motion picture sense. The normal is ten to twenty weeks. Um, so there were just like I said, there were a lot of handicaps that were thrown at us because basically they said, Okay, this company is falling. There's going to be no more cash flow or money coming in for the project, regardless of what was budgeted. We have to take whatever we have left in the bank and finish the film. So, anyway, there was a lot of things that came about. And like I said, we were actually lucky that we got something with a beginning, middle, and end put together. But uh, it was it was, uh, it was, it was frustrating, to say the least. But... Um, but at the same time, it was a, it was a heck of a learning experience because uh, you really have to constantly think outside the box and take whatever you whatever little morsels and resources you had to get the film done. Um, but anyway, anyway, guess ask away. <laughs> well, the 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 project was so yeah. So you came up with the story for for the film, is that right? I actually came up with the story and with the screenplay. Actually, there was the uh, and the story. Really, ironically enough. The genesis of the story for me was a prequel to the to Carpenter's The Thing, and um, and I felt well this is this is such a hot, very an extremely visible intellectual property, and I was going to get caught up in the um, the legalities of things and the studio uh, politics and and I just thought okay this isn't going to work I think this is going to be too much of a nightmare so I modified it and I came up with the retrograde story and, and wrote the screenplay. And I wasn't credited uh, for the screenplay because by the time the film got done and there was so many compromises because of what was happening, I said, guys, I just don't feel ethically and morally um, 
comfortable taking the screenplay credit because because of what was happening. So much of the of the original ideas and and uh, nuances. I shouldn't say ideas, but the nuances were all lost. And I said, I'll just take the story by credit and uh, another entity. I think uh, I forgot his name. Giovanni Lucchi or something like that took the screenplay credit, but um, but he had absolutely nothing to do with it, to be honest with you. And I'm just being honest. <laughs> now, now with regard to Dolph Lundgren, at what point did he become attached to the project? Did you seek Lundgren out for for the role in the film, or did did other people come on board and say, "Hey, we think Lundgren would be perfect for this"? How did that work? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story how this worked. It's actually it's a really a really kind of a fun little Hollywood story, and this rarely happens. I did a I did a a micro budget sci fi called Aurora when I was um, younger, back in '96, and it had gone it had circulated through various film festivals, and um, and won a couple of awards. And but one producer took notice of it, a guy named Joseph Merhi, and he called me in, and he goes, "Listen, I dug this. I like your film, and I think you've got something." Um, would you be interested in redoing it? And I said, uh, yeah, I guess. But I, but I looked at Joseph and I said, you know, in all honesty, Joseph, I feel like I had been down that road and I'd like to try something else. And then I asked, and I turned, I turned the, I turned the conversation back on him and I said, Joseph, what is it that you're looking for? And he goes, well, do you want me to be honest? He goes, I, I'm looking for a project for Dolph Lundgren, Gary Daniels, and a pretty girl. And I and I kind of looked at him and smiled. And I said, I got it, because it just so happens that I've been kind of developing this thing called Retrograde, which would star someone of the caliber of um, Dolph Lundgren and, and certainly Gary Daniels. And he said, let me read it. And I presented it to him, and within, uh, I don't know, probably less than a month, I was sitting at a table with Dolph and going through the project with him, and he, he signed on. It all happened very fast. It was really quite... Amazing. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way in this town. But it was just. There were just things that just kind of fell on the sink in the universe at that time. What was the like having Lundgren on set? Did he bring any any ideas or any specific character traits to his role in the film? No, Dolph. Dolph actually, as you as you know of Dolph, he's, he is a he is an auteur in his own right, and um, he had some he had some strong opinions about certain things, and he he got he and I fleshed out certain things about his character and, and the story and, and certain things that were playing out at the time. And he was, um, he was very collaborative and, um, and very involved. And I, you know, at the time he was, how can I put it? I mean, at the time I think he had come off of a bit of a lull. He had, and he was trying to kind of uh, ramp some things back up in his career. And, um, and I'm, I'm not saying retrograde was necessarily successful for him in that regard, but certainly thereafter, he he things began to turn around for him in a very big way and and beautiful way. And certainly, you know, he is he has thrived and he continues to thrive um, as a talent and 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 um, in the, in the uh, motion picture business. Well, and I love the fact that you were able, you know, in this in this you know little sci-fi movie that you did, you were able to get two action stars on set in this film, both Dolph Lundgren and Gary Daniels. And I was just curious, yeah. having both martial artists, you know, both, both these actors who are so um, well-versed in martial arts, was it intimidating at all, having having these two guys <laughs> on set? Was there any kind of competition among them at all? or You know, Gary, Gary was, um, 
I'm trying. I'm just again. I'm kind of like churning up my memories. Um, Gary was sort of. I I pushed hard for Gary, but there were some things that were in play that weren't quite sitting well. Um, with I believe it was with the franchise people, but certainly not with Joseph Murphy, who who hooked me up with all of these people. And um, but anyway, I pushed hard to get Gary and. Unfortunately, it was in a significantly smaller role because I was hoping that Gary was going to be cast as what would have ultimately been the Dalton character, the, the uh, antagonist. And I thought that would have been interesting um, and have Gary play against type because he's always, you know, he's always playing a, uh, you know, the, the good looking uh, hero character and play him, have him play sort of like this steely, steely villain. And um, it didn't work out. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and he was brought on to play a much uh, smaller character. Um, but I was still, I was uh, tickled to have him on board. And, and Dolph is a terrific guy, but Gary is just, a, he's like a super sweetheart. He is really one of the nicest people you will ever meet or ever work with. He was just that guy. He was, he saw what was happening around me with the production, and, you know, this franchise was collapsing as we were shooting this thing. And um, he was very, very supportive. Dolph was probably a little more nervous, um, but still, everybody stepped up and did what we needed to do to get the project done. Okay. And to the best of our abilities. Yep. Well, and I wanted to ask you as well. The one of the things that that I appreciate about the film that I think just looks so cool are the suits that <laughs> that Dolph and the time travelers from the future wear. I just thought they looked so cool. And I understand, at least according from what, what I read online, these were motorcycle jackets and pants that you guys modified to to, to make they, look like uh, time traveler suits. Is that right? They they were indeed yes. And in fact, um, I am a motorcyclist. And as as we were ro- getting ready to roll into this and running into some um, budgetary constraints, I, I suggested I said, guys, there's some awesome. Uh, motorcycle apparel out there, and it, in fact, even back then, I thought it was they were even more interesting than this, some of the stuff that we have today. And um, and I wish I had saved one of those suits, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, put it out there. We made some modifications, but they were they were they were motor they were motorcycle riding gear, and um, it was it, it was a uh, it was because obviously you've seen the film, and there's there were quite a few bodies that we needed to dress. Um, and uh, yeah, those those suits are awesome, and I I do regret not taking one home with me, but <laughs> so that's what we did. Yeah. Well, no, it's so cool, and it's funny because my wife was actually coming in and out the other night when when I was watching it, and <laughs> and she was watching it, and she said, "Okay, let me guess. The good guys are the ones in the red motorcycle suits, and the bad guys are the ones in the black motorcycle suits, right?" Yeah, we, said, we the, yep, yeah, we played a few of the archetypes. You know, the, the bad guys are wearing black. <laughs> So um, now the, the other thing I wanted to ask you the uh, the snowy landscape for the film I I, I think I mean, I mean look this, this is a, a time travel futuristic thriller but I think the the snowy landscape that you add to the film kind of adds a uh, nice original unique touch to it and it's it's certainly dif- uh, different from your typical time travel thriller what was did you guys use any CGI and props at all for those snowy sequences or were the actors legitimately battling and rolling around in those elements. I'll tell you about this, the snow stuff. Um, on the most part, yes, it was real snow. Um, what we had, um, again, what we opted to do, and we didn't have a lot of time or money, but we um, 
we took the production up to the Dolomite in uh, northern Italy, which in the uh, the Dolomite mountain range, and we went up to a, a really high elevation above the tree line. And um, we shot up in the Dolomites, and when we got there, we got hit with an, a crazy heavy snowstorm. I don't even know how the hell we got up there and how we got out of there, but we did. And But we only had two days, and we really needed like three or four. So given that we only had two days in the Dolomites to get some of those big, vast, scenic things and the sequence at the end when Dolph was fighting Dalton, the character of Dalton, played by, um, oh, God, uh, Joe Montana, I believe is the actor's name. Um, we brought back, we, what we did is we, we created a little makeshift Antarctic set in Luxembourg, which consisted of white vinyl tarp with marble sand on it, which is sort of like a crystalline marble-like sand. And it it is the best stuff for fake snow. I've never seen anything. It doesn't look like pillow pillow stuffing. It just looks really, really good. And some smoke. And we um, we shot some stuff in Luxembourg where it wasn't freezing. And... Um, and a couple of days up in the Dolomites, certainly like that those big opening shots where you see the uh, the Rocky Mountain range behind Dolph, and he kind of comes up from out of the the bleakness of the white uh, scenery. Um, so it was a combination of real snow, <laughs> somewhat Arctic conditions. To here we are in Luxembourg on a uh, plot of land, probably not much bigger than a the the, the stamp, you know, the size of a gas station. How's that for an answer? Now, okay, so you, you kind of touched upon this already, but you shot the film, and this is what I read online, but, yeah, you shot the film in just under 20 days. Is that right? It was, uh, it literally was 20 days. It was four or five-day weeks. What was the original time frame for, for shooting the film? Believe it or not, it wasn't much longer. It was 25 days, but it became 20. Uh, basically, we would have had an extra week to kind of, like, iron out some things, but... um I mean, I don't know what the cost was back then, and certainly it was a European co-production, but in, in the States, if you're doing an independent movie, or I, or I like to refer to them as the dependent movie, your spend on an average dependent movie is somewhere between twenty five and $40,000 a day. Um, that's excluding talent salaries and things like that. That's just getting a crew that's big enough to and, and cameras and some lights, just enough to get the thing rolling and, and um, functioning. Although back then it was different because we were shooting film at the time. I mean, digital wasn't even, wasn't re hadn't really made its mark. Um, I wish we had digital because we could have worked much faster and done a lot more. But, uh, you know, it was 2003. What can I say? Well, and I I'm curious, when was the last time you, you sat down and, and watched the film? If, if if you can go back that far. I know it's been a you while. You know, I, I, I can. Uh, it just so happens uh, two years ago, I took the um, – there was another cut of the movie. It was slightly different. Um, it never was released um, for, for a handful of reasons. But there was a slightly different version of the film that was put together in the two-and-a-half, three-week period that I had to cut the film. And I happened to have a, a copy of that. Um, and it was the only one, I am the only one who has this copy. And um, what I did two years ago is I took the standard def, standard definition um, video master and I um, I did an up-res conversion to uh, 1080i, 
which kind of made it pseudo HD and thus and also put it in a proper 16 by 9 format. So I, because I created these these quote unquote high def video files, I have I watched the film two years ago again, and uh, so there you go. I was able to see it again, and I'd be happy to uh, to send you a copy of it if you're if you're interested. Oh, that would be amazing. I, I would love that. That you would, would be, be awesome. one of you'd be probably one of two or three people in the whole world who has what was essentially the the original two-and-a-half-week director's cut of the film. Um, not perfect. We, we you'll, If anything, the biggest difference is um, there was a little more at the beginning when we're in the future. Um, and it plays with the notion that even though they've moved back in time, there's some some trace elements that, that Dolph's character remembers of various components in time. Like he's... In his travels, he's he's like he's his brain has picked up snapshots in time, so he kind of has flashbacks and flash forwards, and we had to we had to take all you know a lot of that stuff out and sim- and just simplify it to you know to the point where it is what it is. Well, and I was going to ask you. I did read that. Yeah, you you did put together a director's cut for the film. Uh, did you ever consider? Um you know, selling it on your own or putting it out there for, you know, for anybody who was interested or was it just kind of your own personal it's, cathartic it's, it's my It's my own because technically speaking, I was work for hire. Even though I came up with the story of screenplay when Franchise gave me the the, the green light to pursue this with, with Dolph, and this is true with ninety, probably ninety-five percent of the directors, even in Hollywood today. Your work for hire. You're like, okay, we 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 like what you've got. Here's your shot. Go do it. But uh, all ownership is is ours. So I I cannot sell it, and I cannot. It's illegal for me to sell it. So what I have is strictly for my own posterity's sake. And if I want to share it with a friend or two, fine. I'm because I'm not selling it. I'm just here. It is. You know. Now. The, the the film was okay. So yeah, you filmed it in 2003. It was completed in what 2003, 2004. One of the things that I find mm-hmm. 2004. Yeah, one of the things that I found interesting about it is it seems like it was released in just about every other part of the world, but it didn't officially find or didn't officially see a uh, a release here in the states until 2008. It was finally put out by a company called First Look Pictures. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, why, why did it take so long for it to finally finally get a release in the U.S.? Um, I think there were some uh, legal encumbrances when the company went under. Um, but let's just say this. When Franchise went under, it, it probably set a whole storm of, of things, both legal and... Um, there were probably some issues that were legal and some things that were just maybe unethical or sensitive that some of the foreign partners, in this case, Carousel Pictures, probably, here, let, let me simplify that. And I don't know this is, I cannot say this is a fact, but it's what I suspect. Carousel came in came into this project with, say, 70% of the, of the cost and franchise with uh, 30 or 30% of the cost or vice versa. One of the parties didn't fully um, meet their obligations, and I think the film, in all honesty, got into a in a legal encumbrance because um, franchise was not able to meet their financial obligations to the project because they fell apart as we were doing it. And um, and I'm not saying this is what happened; it's what I suspect may have happened. 
And by the time it got sorted out um, through the courts or whatever happened, because I don't, I wasn't privy to it, but I do remember having to give some um, written documentation as to uh, the experiences I understood it to be on the set with regards to the funding and and whatever came of that, you know, I never got called into a, in, into a courtroom or it was never never got that far from me, but I do remember saying, hey, listen, this is what I was told was going to happen, and this is what happened. This is what we, I was told the film was going to have as, in terms of financial resources, and this is what happened. And, and, in, and in those cases, it was uh, quite short, you know, uh, financially. So um, I think what hap- ultimately what I, what I believe happened is they were they were just legal rights who who own who actually owns this film. It's kind of like franchise technically own the film. If you didn't pay for the film, how can you own it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Were you? I mean, you know, as the director, I mean, this this entire project was your baby. Were you were you excited and relieved when it finally saw an official release, or had, by that point had you moved on to other projects that were taking up your your time? <laughs> no, I, I didn't really move on. I was actually burnt out. I was exhausted. Um, because uh, I mean, listen, when you're given a project, any project, and you're and someone has faith in you to produce and write and direct a project, it, you, you know, you, it's ex- it's an incredibly exciting time for for a filmmaker. I mean, it is your life dream. And then for me, what happened at the end, I I had I really had the expectations of delivering something that was. Um, as entertaining and as stimulating and with the production value of, say, John Carpenter's The Thing, which is where the genesis of it all started. And it fell significantly short of that for me. Um, but there was so much there was so much going on behind the scenes that every day was, a, was another nightmare. It's like, case in point, um, when we set out to shoot... Um, I was given a stipend of basically 5,000 feet of 35 millimeter film a day, which is tight but not, um, but not not horrible. What happened is once we started shooting, and because things were getting so bad on the franchise side because of what was happening with the company in general, they said you've got 1,500 feet of film to shoot a day, which is nothing. Um, it's literally like <laughs> it's being a, it's 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 like it's like someone asking you, Sean, I need you to drive me 400 miles from my house to whatever, location B, but I only have $20 in gas to do it, and you have to make it work. Um, it really was, was that awful. So what what happened was, what was why I was so exhausted and burned out by the end of this process, is with 1,500 feet of film a day to shoot, I had to cut the film as we were shooting it in my head, um, where you couldn't let a scene play out. So I would literally like would start. I would we would frame a shot and we would start rolling, and then probably at a certain point I would say, "Cut! You got to stop now. I got to change up the lens, change up the angle." So whenever you see a little cut in there, it's because little. There's it wasn't because we we were assembling this thing in the in the editing room. It was we were assembling it as we were shooting it, and only photographing the exact components that we needed to to tell a coherent story. And that all had to do with the fact that we only had 1,500 feet of film a day to shoot, which is 
unheard of. It's 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 literally being asked to swim with your legs and your hands tied. Well, and I, I've I've read various rumors and, and trivia online that this was not the easiest of shoots, but just the fact that you were still able to um, get to the finish line with a finished yeah. product, and the fact that you know your your leads and all your stars were still on board, and, and you know, and everything, I think says says a lot to your ability as a as a director. So I have to give you give everyone major props for that. I, I appreciate it, and they really were an awesome group of people to work with. In that they they saw what was happening, and they just said, you know what, we'll we'll make it work. We'll just make it work. Um, don't freak out. Um, I mean, there was a lot. They were listen. It got it got a little crazy, but um, but they were they were just they were good. They were good supportive people, and um, and I mean I can't say anymore because it was really just I. I you may, I mean, if you look me up on IMDb, I've got a, I've, I've worked on as a post producer on so and post supervisor on so many films. I still to this day tell people in in all in 30 years of experience, um, either making films or or facilitating, in terms of the the enormous constraints we had, um, and I'm like. I, I am. I mean, I'm glad you've recognized it, but I'm certainly proud that wow, we actually got something made. Did it fall short of certain expectations? Absolutely, but it got made. It's, it tells a story, and you know, maybe one day it'll get resurrected and, and really polished and done in the way that it should be done. Um, but it's it's still there, and and it was one heck of a ride. <laughs> it was it was certainly a moment in time I will never ever forget. And maybe it's a moment in time you probably don't want to relive. I imagine <laughs> not on that not on that level, no, because <laughs> I it, it burned me out so bad because it was so challenging that I just said, you know, I need to back away from this part of the business and just get my head regroup and and, and uh, pursue other things. But it was it was an enormous learning experience, and um, and it was just it was literally like sailing in a in a tiny rowboat in a hurricane um, through the whole process. Um, luckily, the, the people on my little rowboat were, were cool people because the crew was awesome. The cast was awesome. Um, in terms of personalities, I mean, they were really a, a terrific group of people to work with. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you um, regarding your career as a post-production supervisor. I mean, you appear to be a real jack-of-all-trades in, in film with experience in writing, editing, directing, producing. Um, with regard to uh, being a post-production supervisor, I'm just curious, what does what does that particular job entail on a film set? <laughs> it's a lot of wrangling. Um, ultimately, I'm responsible to the budget. Um, and in, what a post-production supervisor does these days, because... Back in the studio system, they weren't post-supervisors. They were called associate producers. And essentially, they would line produce the finishing of the movie. What has happened in, in more recent years is that the post-production supervisors get much more involved with the camera teams and the labs from the get-go, establishing a daily's workflow. As footage is coming in, we're, we're help managing the team um, so that the editors and the sound designers and all the people who are involved creatively are getting what they need. On the finishing side, because business has changed so much, oftentimes I'm overseeing color timing, sound mixes. I mean, it's it's. I mean, post post supervisors are dealing with the legal, 
with the accounting, with the uh, logistics of making sure that editors and all the creative people have what they need. Um, and ultimately, even even right down to the minutia and details of um, getting involved with the um, mastering for home video. So I literally tell people in 90% of the cases, I have had my finger on this thing in some capacity from the day that they started rolling to the day that you buy it on home video. The only difference is it's managing all the logistics on on, on the logistics level. Um, the editors are doing the creative storytelling, the director, the composers are giving it its musical DNA, the sound mix is cre- taking all of this and creating this world with sound, and I'm just help facilitating all the moving parts so that the machinery in the assembly line runs smoothly. And if there's a problem, I'm the one who gets a call at 3 in the morning saying, we've got a fire, you need to put it out, or we need your help to put it out. And 90% of the time, I'm putting out fires. But as a filmmaker, it's an awesome position to be in because you see where everything works and you also learn where, when things fall apart how to cure them. Wow, that is really cool. Uh, and I noticed, yeah, I mean, you, you have been extremely busy within the past 10 years. Are there any, any films that you've uh, that you worked on as a post-production supervisor that were particularly fun or memorable to, to work on for, you know, for whatever reason? Oh, um well, more recently, I just I just did a proof of concept called The Reckoning of Darkness, which was my own project. So it was it, talk about thirty years of experience. This this one couldn't have gone smoother and been more fun. But a lot of it was my own personal uh, bias towards it. I mean, and love for it. But the but the people I worked with were awesome. But in terms of work outside of of my own stuff, um, there was a little movie that I was a post-supervisor on, um, that Topher Grace was the actor in and also um, producer, called Take Me Home Tonight. It's a little 80s throwback movie. Oh, yeah, And it was was just a sweet, darling little movie. And Topher, to his credit, um, he made it an incredibly pleasant experience. Um, And it sticks out because I remember thinking, wow, I wish they all were this fun. And part of it was Topher just had an incredibly even temper, um, in fact, he had no temper. He he made his team feel very welcomed and invited to the party, so to speak. And it was just a good, chill experience. I mean, there were other movies that that were um, that were that were pleasant and fun. That one sticks out because he he had this this energy about him that was um, very warm and nurturing and inviting, and and he just he wanted everyone to feel like, you know what, we're just pl- we're just having a good time in front of a camera and through a process and there shouldn't be any tension because there's often a lot of there's a lot of people involved in most movies and things can get a little tense and you and you got to you know, you got to you got to be a psychologist and a psychiatrist half the time and 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 deal with the politics and handle it. Um well, Topher just made it easy and and I just remember that about him and I remember that, you know, the the film didn't have, you know, didn't really have any legs box office wise, but it was just so much fun to work with. I'm like, it was literally like getting your buddies together and just having a good, good time making a, a film. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Well, no, I, I distinctly remember actually. I, yeah, I did. I was, uh, I was one of the ones who saw that one in the theaters, and uh, yeah, no, I enjoyed it as well. I, I read on, I guess I read online that 
it, it, they didn't, the, the, the producers or the distributors, excuse me, didn't know how to market that one entirely um, accurately just due to the, uh, the, the, the drug use in the film. I don't know how, how much truth there is to that or not, but... Um, I really don't know. I mean, there really was yeah. so little of it. I mean, there was a little yeah. bit with, with the, you know, the, it was the 80s. It was the, the uh, Mercedes car dealer, uh, the, the salesperson. And him, you know, being sort of like the wild card in in the uh, the characters, and but it, it wasn't that heavy. I mean, it was no. it was all it, the whole film was was not. It was just a, a throwback to an eighties, uh, a teen comedy, and it and it just had some fun. But how they marketed it, I, I don't even remember. I just I just like I said, I just the experience is what I recall, and I remember thinking, yeah, not it didn't like I said, the film didn't have legs. Sadly, but it was just it stands out because it was just so much fun and, and and a lot of it had to do with you know Topher who kind of came in he was a producer but he kind of was also in the end he was pseudo directing it and he was just just an awesomely amazing guy I mean he was just so pleasant and um, and it sticks out you know it was a, it was a good and there were a lot of there were a number of films that <coughs> were just fun and. Um, that one was was exceptionally pleasant. I mean, everyone had a good time. Are you at liberty to say what you're currently working on uh, at the moment? Well, um, from a standpoint of post production, um, there's a movie called Mary with Gary Oldman that I'm currently working on. Um, more recently, I finished Den of Thieves with um, Gerard Butler. Um, Love that one. Also, yeah, which is also a good experience. Um, They're making a sequel to that, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, yeah, Christian, the director, who's also the writer, brilliant guy. Um, he is. Um, he's writing right now. Um, that's my understanding. Um, so it's Mary, and um, I just signed on to a project called Actor, which is a coming of age uh, teen romance, um, and. Uh, and Reckoning of Darkness, which I'm, you know, again, I finished this proof of concept. Now I'm just trying to see if I can get it off the ground. Well, hey, uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but Chris, I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about this film. Like, like I said, I know it was not uh, one of the easiest of shoots, but I do, I certainly do appreciate you going back and, um, you know, sharing your recollections. <laughs> it, was back, with me. It, it was back, it was back in time, and it was, it was a, uh, it was an awesome experience. Not an easy experience, but an awesome experience, and and I certainly gained a lot of knowledge um, from that experience. From the standpoint of like, okay, you really got to put on your creative chops because you can't run to the bank to solve problems. You have to you have to really think it out and and come up with solutions very quickly. And uh, and people like Dolphin and the rest of the cast who uh, stuck it out, they were just they were terrific people to work with, and and. We all managed to get it together in the end of the day. Well, and I can't think of too many movies where the motorcycle suits looked as badass as they do in this film. So <laughs> I can't think of too many. I wish I had, like I said, I wish I had one of those suits right now. They were, they were gold suits. Well, hey, Mr. Kukowski, or excuse me, Chris, uh, <laughs> I really do appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. All right, Sean, you be well.